Welcome to our next episode of our All for Business podcast series brought to you by the Lynchburg Regional Business Alliance, where we talk all things business. I'm Christine Kennedy, Chief Operating Officer and Executive Vice President here at the Alliance, and I am so pleased today to have with me Gary Mignona. Gary has a 40-year nuclear career and is the current CEO of Framatome here in Lynchburg. And I'll tell you a little bit about him, but really part of his story is part of what we're going to talk about today. So just a little bit of background. He started his career with Babcock and Wilcox performing engineering analysis for new nuclear plant designs and for modifications to existing plants. He has his BS and MS degrees in mechanical engineering from Drexel University and an MBA from University of Lynchburg. He was appointed to president and CEO of Areva Inc. in 2014 and its successor, Framatome Inc., in 2018. He is on a host of boards for the nuclear industry, but he's also held numerous nonprofit positions, uh, both with church, private school, university boards, and he's currently on the National D-Day Memorial Foundation Board, Beacon of Hope, and the University of Lynchburg Board. So, Gary, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Christine. We are so glad to have you today. To start, let's just talk about your career path. I mean, obviously, um, you have an engineering mind, and you started off in engineering, but talk about how you started off, um, you know, doing engineering analysis, and now you're the CEO of Framatome. Let's talk about that. Oh, gosh. It's, um, it's a long story. Um, so I started when I was 19 um, as what we call a cooperative education student that is working six months and going to school six months. And uh, I chose that path because it made sense just to, one, earn money um, while I'm going to school, but also to apply what I'm learning as I learn it. And it turned out to be uh, a good way to approach the engineering curriculum. And as I worked more and more on new plant designs, um, it became interesting for me to understand how we were going to maintain the plants. And then in 1979, we had TMI-2, um, which was the, the worst uh, accident that the U.S. has seen for a nuclear plant. Uh, fortunately, everything worked as far as containing any, um, any types of radiation, so there was no harm to the public. But the fact is, um, it sort of woke me up into really getting more interested into the maintenance of the plants rather than just the design of, of new plants. And in 1979, uh, when I was in school, I got a call from my boss saying, hey, we need people to go to TMI to really understand what happened and do a post-accident assessment. Are you willing to go? And of, of course, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll be glad to go. And that was eye-opening and enlightening in the fact that it, it really helped drive home to me the need for people to be dedicated to the nuclear industry and really understand the safety significance of what we were doing and to really try to propagate that attitude and knowledge um, as I progressed through my career. Yeah. So then um, after TMI, we had contracts for 34 new plants, um, but after TMI, we saw one cancellation after another. We en only ended up building 10 of those 34 units. And it became apparent to me that I needed to transition my career really into the services organization from the engineering organization. So in 1986, um, I made that transition into services with the thought that, okay, now's my chance to really um, innovate new 
new ways to keep these plants maintained. And so I did that from 1986 all the way through until 2006. And then I saw a need to get back into engineering. The plants were aging. They needed more um, advanced analytical techniques. And also we were, at the time, designing new plants again. Um, so it became fascinating for me to go back into, into engineering and um, to make sure that the new plant designs really had, had the level of safety and quality that was necessary. And also plants were starting to apply for license extensions going from 40 years to 60 years and now from 60 years to 80 years and to make sure that everything that we were doing was consistent with operating these plants safely for the long term. So I, I made transitions as the industry transitioned, always running towards problems, not away from problems. That's, that's an interesting perspective, right? Not everybody does that. Um, I like how you said that. Talk about, I mean, you've been with one slash two entities over the lifespan of your career, which is almost unheard of today. Um, but you also have an inside seat to how Framatome is headquartered here. Can you talk a little bit about that decision and how Framatome ended up being headquartered in the Lynchburg region and why that matters for a community like Lynchburg? Mm-hmm. Well, of course, when we were um, Babcock and Wilcox, we had a strong presence here. In, um, in 1989, Framatome purchased the commercial nuclear operations of Babcock and Wilcox. And the, so the headquarters has bounced around uh, since then. It was in Bethesda, Maryland. It was in Charlotte, North Carolina. And the major infrastructure centers for what is now Framatome uh, North American operations were Richland, Washington, and Lynchburg, Virginia. And it just didn't make sense to me to have a headquarters in a place where you just have an office footprint. It made sense to have it where you have some significant infrastructure. Because in the end, you want to bring customers to your headquarters. And in the end, you want them to really see what you do, not just see an office. You want them to see really the, the, the business of the business you know, where the, the people are training, they're working, they're producing. That's really what we want customers to see. And this was the place to do it. It was either here or Richland, Washington, and just made sense um, for Lynchburg, Virginia. For a lot of reasons, not the least of which it's, you know, it's a great place to live. It's a great quality of life. Um, it's easy um, from a recruiting perspective from Virginia schools, you know, top quality engineering schools, Virginia Tech University, Virginia, Virginia Commonwealth University, et cetera. And, um, and now Liberty University is, um, is into engineering programs as well. So a lot of wealth of talent right, right in this local area that's good for recruiting. So you are a native of this region, no, per se. No, native Lynchburgers 20, would not admit I'm a, I'm a native. <laughs> We'd call you. They say no. anything over 20 years, we can count you as a native. But, okay. but I, you're fairly, you've been here a while, since 19? Since, since you were 19? Okay, since 1970. Since 19, when I was in middle school. Moved here when I was in middle school. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have a lot of CEOs that are now moving to the area where you you kind of started your career here and have stayed here. Why have you stayed and what do you consider to be the assets uh, of our business community? I mean, you talked about the cost of living. You talked about the schools being here. But what else would you say and, and why have you stayed? Well, first, I'm, I'm loyal to the company that I'm working for. Um, and that's 
of course, I could have gone other places with the company, and but and I did. I moved down to Columbia, South Carolina, for a couple of years, and uh, and then came back. Of course, I went away to school and came back. You know, I keep coming back. Um, it it it's it's a great business environment. You know, we get good support from the city and the surrounding counties. You know, our facilities both in Lynchburg and in Camel County. Um, we get good support. As I mentioned, it, it, it's a good area for recruiting, and, and it's even a better area for recruiting now with the downtown revitalization, which has been so critical to being able to retain young talent. Absolutely. It's always been easy to retain families here because uh, it's a great place to raise a family, but now it's also a good place to retain young employees as well. So, um, it, you know, I don't like traffic. <laughs> you can get anywhere here in 10 to 20 minutes. Um, I have, you know, I have about an eight minute commute to work in the morning in eight minutes, which allows me to spend more time at work without losing a lot of time with families. You, a lot of communities you have an hour, an hour and a half commute to and from work, which is an interesting thing about the pandemic. I'm going to sort of get sidetracked here for a minute, but in communities where there are very long commutes, like for an hour or two hours, um, people found productivity actually increased when they had people work from home. And, uh, and, and that was very interesting. So the perspective of our parent company in Paris was very different than our perspective on remote work. Um, they saw productivity increase. We saw really about the same. Um, my big concern was losing culture and innovation um, and collaboration when you work remotely. So we were able to get back to the office more quickly um, in this community than larger communities were able to. Uh, and I think that that was relevant as well. I think Centra um, stepped up for us in a big way. We were able to get many of our employees vaccinated early on. It's that kind of community support that I'm talking about that's really, really um, lends itself well for a good business environment here. Yeah. You know, I, I was talking with an exec one time who said, you guys don't have rush hour, you have rush minute. And that was such a good frame of reference, because if you ever have driven in Atlanta around, well, 3 to 7 p.m., mm-hmm. right? I mean, it is, you know, you can't get anywhere or in the morning. Um, and we really do have, if you've been anywhere else, you don't consider Lynchburg to have a traffic problem at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, th- I think that you're right. It's one of the treasures, assets of this region. You you kind of dovetailed on uh, some of the challenges um, of the pandemic, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Um but this whole work from home culture, the the challenges that some some companies have faced and and some haven't, some have seen more benefits. How did you all navigate decision making on? Because in, in the beginning you had to, right? We had mm-hmm. to 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 shift how we knew do normal business operations. You still had outage season. You still had to send people out, but you had to 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 figure out a way to do that. What? Talk about your decision-making process in crisis management and those kind of situations. How did sure. you do that? Well, we have we formed the crisis management team um, with a lot of smart people from different aspects of the business, um, cooperating together and making decisions, following what the federal government um, was saying, what the state government was saying, what epidemiologists were saying, um, trying to negotiate through what unfortunately became politicized and just understanding the science and in making decisions based not only on the science, on what was pragmatic for our operations, but also minding very carefully um, what state and CDC were telling us, um, any, any mandates were coming out or any, any guidelines. 
and we and we followed them. I mean, that, it was really just that simple. We followed we followed the guidelines. We followed the mandates. We we um, had a view on the science, and we made the application pragmatic for how we operate. Um, so remote work, yeah. So we definitely reduced office density. Um, we didn't close our offices, but we we reduced office density. Um, and and I, I'm a firm believer in pushing decisions um, to the level where you have boots on the ground, right? To use a term, to, pushing decisions to a level where the people really understand the impacts to them and to the work that they're doing. Because in the end, what's important is supporting the people actually doing the work, the work, the business part of the business. And um, and so we we just rolled out um, policies with flexibility so that people could make decisions of what's right for their work group. Obviously, production workers in our manufacturing facility had to keep yeah. producing. Yeah. So how do we keep them safe, right? So mask wearing, social distancing, those types of things, we, we followed all of that. We encouraged vaccinations. We had vaccination clinics here in Lynchburg with Centra. Um, testing was an important. Um, Central Virginia Family Practice stepped up and did some uh, really good PCR testing with quick turnaround results for us. Um, we had similar situations out in Richland, Washington, with the local community, healthcare community, supporting us with vaccinations and and with testing. Um, so all of those things were really important to keep um, to keep the pandemic out of the workforce. And 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 as we see, I mean, everybody's safe at work, and they're still safe at work. I mean, we've had practically no transmission within our facilities, but I'm going to say practically no one or two in, in the whole course of yeah, the pandemic. That's remarkable. Every, everybody's picking it up at home um, for the most part or out in the community. And, um, and that's fine. And we also offered a supplemental sick time for those people because the worst thing that could happen is they feel like they have to come to work because they're out of vacation or sick time or whatever, and then spread, right? Um, the other thing we had to encourage people you know, to stay at home. We have a very loyal workforce and everybody's very enthusiastic about the work. And, you know, in the past, if you were sick, you still came into work, right? But no, you, you can't you can't do that during the pandemic. So encouraging people, if you have any symptoms, stay at home, go get tested, monitor, come back when you're safe. And we just approached it that way. And, and again, we st- we're still doing that today. We're still pushing the decision level to, you know, to the supervisors, to the managers, what makes sense for your work group. My big concern, as I mentioned before, is you you lose a lot um, relative to onboarding young people and and um, instilling in them the right culture, because our industry has a very specific culture and our company has a very specific culture, which is critical to our success. And then also you lose innovation and collaboration. And I know people say, oh, you know, especially younger people are used to social media and mm-hmm. doing doing things remotely anyhow. Uh, it's just not the same. And I think companies are going to find out those who insist on continuing uh, remote work will find out that they're losing ground in the areas of collaboration and innovation. So to the extent people can come back uh, to work, we're encouraging it. But I think one of the results of the pandemic on the positive side is we've learned we can do a lot more remote work than we thought before. So in the past, let's just say, you know, you you had um, a working mother who had a sick child. They would take a vacation day, or we allow them to take one of their own sick days to take care. Now, fine, be at home with your child. Take your computer home. Work from home. Tend to your child. You can do both at the same time. No problem. Which which and on the positive to culture, right? Mm-hmm. That flexibility that they know you care about them enough yeah. to. You don't have to be that strict on right, on exactly. certain things unless you're 
working an outage and you have to, yeah. Yeah. yeah if you had an outage or you're doing production work, okay, it's a bit different, but. So mm-hmm. you meant you've used the word innovation a couple of times. How, uh, how do you approach innovation personally? Um, you know, you said you run two problems, not away from problems. So mm-hmm. uh, you've been, you've been in the same industry for a long time. How do you keep um, yourself from, from stopping that innovation cycle? I, I'll never forget one of our um, young interns at one of at our church said a quote that I this this summer that I'll never forget. It was there are no neutral seventy year olds, and I had to really think about that. That was such an interesting quote to me. Like you're either moving forward or you're stepping back because at that point you're you're either bored or you've decided I'm done. I don't really want to learn anymore. I'm sitting in a rocking chair. Or you continue to move, and and so as a leader, how do you continue to innovate and learn and sharpen your own saw? Well, in putting customers first and understanding their needs, and their needs change over time. Um, and and in our industry, where our job is either to innovate new designs for plants or to maintain the existing plants, you as as you see problems arise for your customers and you have to stay close to customers and you have to be asking them what issues are you having um, it becomes easy to innovate because your job is to find solutions you find solutions to keep their existing plants running or find solutions to support um, new reactor designs and it, and it just becomes part of your culture is you you want to find the solutions you want you want to be able to to fix the problems and competition helps as well i mean i love competition you know, competitors are, are are driving us also to have a passion for innovation to stay ahead of them. We're we're not we're not the big dog in this race. You know, we're the smaller dog because Westinghouse, for example, our main competitor. You know, they we we have what we call the OEM or the Original Equipment Manufacturer status of five plants in North America. You know, Westinghouse has more like sixty. Wow. You know, okay, yeah. GE has more like thirty. Right. So, so. We have to innovate. That's how we do our business. Customers come to us because of our innovations, mm-hmm. not because we were the original equipment manufacturer for mm-hmm. for their for their plants. Mm-hmm. Future of nuclear. Mm-hmm. I, I think nuclear has a really bright future. Um, it's it's, re- it's a really interesting dynamic if you look at what's happened in Congress over the last ten years. You know, initially it was all about Republicans supporting nuclear. Um, and now there's a really strong bipartisan support for nuclear. And in fact, I would say under the Trump administration, there were more Democrats than Republicans um, trying to push forward and advance nuclear agenda. And, it, and it's mainly because of climate change. I think people understand climate change is real. It's not fictitious. Yes, polar ice caps are really melting. Yes, we're having more severe weather than before. There's always the argument, oh, well, you know, how much is man really contributing? Well, you don't know what the tipping point is. Even if we're only contributing 1%, that could be the tipping point in the environment. We don't, we don't know. Um, so anything that, that we can do to limit our emissions, we should be doing. And I think we now have bipartisan support in Congress, which is important for appropriations to the Department of Energy, which then helps fund on, on a public-private partnership basis um, innovations for advanced nuclear, not only for advanced nuclear fuels, for example, for the existing 
uh, plants, but also for new reactor designs. And so our strategy right now, Framatome's strategy, is to support any and all new nuclear designs. There are dozens of, of uh, companies, upstart companies, a lot of them, um, innovating new, re and I, I call them new reactor designs. It's actually technologies that were abandoned in the 1950s in favor of our current light water reactors. Um, and they're resurrecting those designs and innovating new materials and new ways of building. Um, and also, of course, now with all the advanced um, computing that we have, mm -hmm. it's much easier to make those designs more feasible. Um, it would have been more difficult back, back in the 1950s. And so our strategy is to support them as well. And a lot of those companies are getting Department of Energy funding, and significant funding, um, in order to put those designs forward. And our goal is to, uh, to support all of those designs. You don't know who's going to win. Uh, so support as many as you can, provide the fuel to as many as you can, um, provide instrumentation and control systems, advanced engineering techniques, whatever they need in order to bring designs to fruition. That's good. That's positive. I, I like to hear that because I know a couple of years ago we were, Lynchburg was a little nervous about the future of nuclear. So it's good that it sounds like things are, um, yeah, the pendulum has swung a little bit. Well, well, it has. I mean, we can't, we can't keep the grid operating, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days That's a right. week with only wind and solar. Should we add wind and solar? Yes. Um, I know Dominion Energy, for example, here in Virginia has just announced plans for a big offshore wind farm, um, yeah. which is great. I, I like the idea of putting it offshore because I think it, wind kind of ruins the landscape, but the big turbines. Um, and so I think, you know, Dominion's going down that path. And, um, and I think rooftop solar is really interesting to, to reduce the demand on the grid. Um, but in the end, if you're going to shut down fossil units, you've got to have something um, for the base load. You have to have something that's going to be able to generate power 24-7, that's going to be able to generate, you know, if, if the renewables, if wind and solar aren't producing. And right now, the only solution we have is, is nuclear. So until we get things like carbon sequestration for fossil units, it's going to be nuclear. And then we'll probably move towards um, hydrogen instead of natural gas for um, gas turbines to also produce uh, energy. But then how do you produce the hydrogen? Yeah. Right now it takes yeah. a fair amount of electricity. So, okay, maybe maybe we use nuclear plants to, um, to where it's not feasible to put new nuclear plants, but you could put um, hydrogen turbines so we can produce the hydrogen that they can burn. So, yeah. yeah. So the future is bright. No pun intended. On yeah. How we might do that. Yeah. So transition, just a couple, couple final questions regarding leadership and kind of behind the curtain of Gary Mignona. So what would you say are the key characteristics of leading an organization, of being a CEO? What, if you look back over your career, the things you're like, yeah, that was, that's really important. That's a key hallmark of being a leader or being a CEO. What are those things? I think first and foremost, surround yourself with really smart people. Um, you know, find people who know what you don't know, understand your limitations, and above all, listen. You know, don't try to be the smartest person in the room. L listen to uh, points of view. Encourage debate. Uh, make it safe for people to have debate. Now, usually when you have two really smart people arguing opposing points of view, the truth or the right decision is somewhere in the middle. So if you just sit back and you listen to the debate, often you can find 
a mediated solution, which is actually better than either points of view. And I think that that's the most important feature of a leader. Yeah. Um, think back and thinking back over your career, what's one of the most, um, difficult challenges you faced and how did you overcome it? Well, there are lots of challenges. Probably the most, um, difficult challenge was transitioning from just a, a technical person to a leader I mean, for some people, perhaps it's just an innate skill, um, but I had to work at it, you know. So, that yeah, that was probably the most interesting challenge, just um, negotiating a path of being able to understand people in a way that you can motivate them um, to perform. Yeah. Uh, because, I mean, to get people to perform, they have to want to. I mean, you... I mean, you could be a bull in a china shop and maybe you get short-term results or, or, or you can just drive from a technical perspective um, as a leader, which is, I think a mistake that our industry made early on is promoting the best technical people into leadership positions yeah. and expecting them to be leaders. Um, it's not an easy transition for, for really, you know, left-brain kind of technical mm -hmm. people to, to be able to relate on a human basis. And for me, that was learned. And, um, and so I... So the challenge was to really put forth the effort to learn, to be empathetic, to understand, and to listen. Yeah, and I would uh, I put a plug in for Framatome and your leadership culture. I mean, you guys have been supporters of Leadership Lynchburg and, and our various levels of leadership program for years. And that's one of the, the things we incorporate into our curriculum because we have such a strong manufacturing base here is incorporating emotional intelligence and management versus leadership and the difference between those two because you have so many highly skilled technical people that you're grooming for leadership but they also need that that acumen of emotional intelligence and culture training and uh, overlaying all the community assets and so they have um, more of an understanding of why this region is great if they're young so they mm -hmm. want to stay here so kudos to you for recognizing that it's not just proficiency and skill it's um, it's also taking care of people and leveraging their skills um, in leadership. Um, what would you tell a young professional that is moving up in their career, no matter the industry? Like you're on a plane, you're sitting next to a young person, and they're like, wow, this is a CEO. What would you tell them? Look for problems to solve. Run towards problems. That's so good. Not, yeah. not away from them. It, it's the most important thing. If you want to make a difference in your company, you know, find where the problem areas are, jump in, you know, both feet and just do what you can to help solve the problems. That's good. Okay. Two final questions. What are you reading? Anything you're reading right now that's interesting or? Wow. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm actually trying to get through three books. Okay. Um, usually I'm reading, Usually I'm reading um, historical fiction okay. in addition to maybe some type of business learning type of book. But right now I'm not reading any historical fiction. I'm reading a book on the healthcare industry and operational excellence within the healthcare industry um, because I think it's interesting to see how that concept of operational excellence is applied in other businesses as well. Maybe we can learn something for our industry. I'm reading a book about cybersecurity. 
and um, really understanding the risks, and it's incredible the, how smart some of the criminals are, um, the risks yeah, with really cyber. Is. Yeah, we, we own a cybersecurity company now called FoxGuard that operates out of Blacksburg, Virginia, and um, it, it, was a, it was a good acquisition, and there's a huge need going forward, and it's never-ending because criminals continue to Because they're innovating. Because yeah, they're so, innovating, yeah. So, so we have to in- innovate as well. And then I'm also reading um, a book on climate change and really understanding. Um, and, and, and what's really fascinating in this book that I'm reading is, you know, we're, we all talk about climate change. We've all been trying since 2005 um, to reduce the amount of emissions. And if you look at the amount of new generation that's been put on the power grid since 2005, 85% has been fossil. Wow. And leading up, to, leading up to 2005, 85% was fossil. So there's a lot of talk. But no shift. But, but not much shift. No, we're not building coal plants now, but boy, put up a lot of combined cycle natural yeah. gas plants. Um, less emissions, about half of coal. So it's an improvement. Sure. But it's still adding um, emitting generation to the grid. Renewables for all the billions that have been spent on renewables have made about a two percent difference. Um, so it's it's really it, it's really a heavy lift to try to do it all with yeah. renewables. And and that's why again I say there's really a bright future for nuclear because smaller reactors that you can put on decommissioned coal sites where you already have grid infrastructure transmission lines makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think we're going to see a, a movement towards that. I hope we hear you testifying before Congress on that that regard before long, because you make a really good case for it. Final question. Uh, who would you invite to dinner, and what would you talk about? Oh, gosh. I'd love to get President Trump and President Biden at dinner together. And, That'd be uh, fascinating. And, and, and listen to that debate where they're actually talking um, in human tones to each other. And, um, and again, listen and, and see where the truth is, because yeah. the truth is always somewhere, somewhere in the middle, somewhere in the middle. Ne- neither one has a, has a stronghold on, on what's right for yeah. the country and just try to find negotiated solutions where this country can move forward and stop being so divided. So good. We, we all need that, don't we? Oh gosh. Yeah. 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 Gary, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to, to share with our listeners and, um, Thank you for leading a a major company and headquartered in our region. We appreciate it. Pleased to do it. Pleased to be here. Thank you, Christine.